today on the Holy Bold Podcast, a trio of trans troubles. Oreo goes woke. A lady says, Joseph, yeah, that Joseph was genderqueer. And the Equality Act passes the House and heads to the Senate. Gonna need some whiskey on this episode. Thank you for joining. This is the Holy Bold Podcast. Welcome, welcome. So glad that you are listening. Truly, I do feel honored that you would spend time. Um, I don't know how long this episode will be, so I don't know how much time I should be grateful for you giving me. But uh, whatever amount of time it is, I am grateful nonetheless. Uh, This episode is going to be a bit of an amalgamation. Usually, you know, I tend to just kind of focus on one topic in an episode, and, and there is definitely a theme in this episode, uh, as I mentioned, I'm going to address a trio of trans troubles. I am Baptist, so we do alliteration. Uh, it helps us to remember things. It's it's a trick you should try. There's some more alliteration for you. Uh, but as I said, this is kind of an amalgamation episode. We're going to be kind of addressing uh, three distinct things, each of which relates to the the topic of transgenderism. And of course... That means that our segment today is The Death of the West. So, uh, obviously, I I chose The Death of the West as our segment today because I think that the, the increase in the acceptability of transgender ideology... Uh, indicates the decay of truth um, in our society. I, I don't think that that is something that really needs to be argued. Uh, most people would affirm that uh, gender, you know, throughout all of human history, has been one of the most clearly recognized distinctions uh, in society. People have just understood there's a difference between men and women, and and it was not really until very recently that people genuinely believed that they could transition from one to the other, that they could transition from being a man to being a woman. And I think this represents a decay of of truth in general, a decay of distinctions, a decay of, uh, honestly, a decay of reason, um, a decay of, of of our ability to even interpret the world around us. Uh, We see in uh, Romans chapter 1, it talks about how God uh, gives people over. He gives people over. It's repeated throughout uh, Romans 1, talking about uh, the increase of sin um, in society at that time and and how God gave people over to their immorality. And I think that we're we're seeing that uh, take place here in the United States, in the West in general. Uh, And so today I want to look specifically at the decay of truth in three uh, specific realms. I think there's three, and these are not like biblical realms. You know, I'm not talking about, you know, some sort of biblical categories really. Well, 
two of them kind of are biblical categories. One is more general than that. Uh, but I'm not trying to make really clear, you know, biblical categories when I talk about these things necessarily. But I'm just saying, if you look at these three sort of uh, segments of culture, or or maybe not segments, but uh, venues uh, of culture, I think we can see truth decaying in each one of them. And so we're going to look at uh, the decay of truth within popular culture, like just just sort of the zeitgeist in general. Uh, and we're going to look at that through a tweet, uh, as odd as it sounds, from Oreo. Uh, Oreo Cookies. They tweeted something today, I believe. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it came out today. Uh, that I think indicates a the decay of truth. Uh, then we're going to look at uh, something in the realm of church. There, there was a video shared. Again, it was shared today uh, that relates to, or I think of is, is exemplary of the decay of truth even within the church. And of course, we would hope that the church would be the bastion of truth. That that uh, no matter how uh, you know absurd things become in in popular culture, we should, we should hope at least that the church would stand strong. Uh, but that does not appear to be what's happening, uh, at least in, in segments of the church. Uh, and then we're going to look at the decay of truth in our government. Uh, and we're going to look at that through the, the passage, at least in the house of the Equality Act. So let's begin. We're going to look at this uh, this tweet that I think is very interesting uh, from from Oreo Oreo cookies. Like it doesn't seem like they like, why why are they addressing things like this? Uh, I have a hypothesis of why, but first let me show you the tweet. Uh, so. Um, if you are listening, let me read this tweet to you. It is a mere three words, but in these words is contained, I think, a whole revolution of truth or revolution, perhaps away from truth. So Oreo tweeted, uh, yes, today, February 25th, 2021 at 1240 p.m. They said trans people exist. Of course, uh, you know, we, we probably all have varying ideas about why they would tweet something like this. But before we get to discussing those ideas of, of why like a tweet like this would even need to exist, uh, I think we should just address the tweet itself. Like, is the tweet itself a, a true statement? Uh, and obviously, we have to affirm there are people who identify as trans. That is a category in which or into which people are sorting themselves these days. Uh, but so, so, so we could say it's true in that sense. Like this, this is a true tweet in that there are people who are sorting themselves into the category of transgender. And so at least according to them, trans people exist. And then according to Oreo, Oreo has decided to affirm their existence in that sense. But I think coming from the Christian worldview, we have to deny the this the supposed truth of this tweet because transgenderism, transgender people do not exist in the way that that Oreo means it or in the way that transgender people mean it. Because what they mean when they say that they are transgender, what they mean is that they were born into a particular body 
and that body was a particular uh, sex, they would say. They do not like to use the term gender to describe biological realities, uh, but they would say that they were born into a body with a particular sex, but that internally in their mind or in their soul, I, I would imagine many of these people are probably uh, atheistic and may not have much of an idea of what a soul would be, uh, but they would say something internal about them, whether it's a mind or a soul or a spirit or whatever it might be, uh, identifies as a different gender than the one they would say that they were assigned at birth. And, and as Christians, we have to say that's not a real thing. Uh, you, Every person is made in the image of God, made by God, and, and was made purposefully as whichever gender he created them as. Like the words gender and sex have been synonymous uh, th as long as they've existed, basically, up until very recently. It's only a, a recent uh, a recent thing that people began to differentiate those terms. And so nowadays people would say gender is a social construct, whereas sex is a biological reality. And so they would say, they would affirm that, that generally bodies have particular sexes, uh, male or female or intersex. They would, you know, they make a big deal out of the fact that there are intersex people, which is a minute, minute percentage of a percentage of the population, but they use the existence of those people to uh, justify the ideology of transgenderism and say, look, gender's not so clear after all, is it? Because some people are born intersex. And then they use that tiny, tiny, tiny percentage to say, look, now that means anybody can identify as anything they want, which obviously that does not logically follow. But it's the same thing that people do with abortion, where they say, you know, you know, we, abortion needs to be legal because some children or some people are raped and children come from that and we should give people the opportunity, uh, you know, or there's uh, some people are physically at risk because of their, uh, you know, if they're going to give birth, that could cause them physical harm and therefore abortion needs to be legal. And what they're doing in, in all of these situations is they're taking the tiny, tiny, tiny percentage and then using that to justify a much larger and and truly unrelated argument. Uh, and what we have to do as as Christians or just people who generally love truth, you know, uh, I would imagine there and I know for a fact that there are a lot of, uh, you know, atheistic non-Christian people who who would actually agree with us on this point that uh, you cannot take the the tiny little percentage and then use that to justify a much larger uh ideology that is actually uh, very unrelated from those uh, biological uh, realities. Um, and so as Christians, what we have to be willing to do is to say, look, uh, God made you. God made you with a purpose. God did not make you mistakenly. And God made you as you are. He did not just create an entity that was you and then let it take form, but instead God created you specifically as you are, knit you together in your mother's womb the way he wanted you to be, and therefore you do not, as a creature, a creation of God, you do not have the, the right uh, to identify as something other than which he made you. 
So as Christians, we cannot affirm, obviously, we cannot affirm this tweet from Oreo Cookie. Uh, Nabisco, come get your boy. He's tweeting weird stuff. I don't know what's going on with Oreo Cookie, but but for some reason, they they felt it necessary to tweet this. And as Christians, obviously, uh, we can't affirm this because we we cannot affirm the ideology behind transgenderism. And what we must affirm instead is that people who feel this way, because I, I will acknowledge there is definitely any person who identifies as transgenderism, I'm sure that there is something going on internally that would lead them to make such a declaration that, you know, and that is a, a gigantic commitment, obviously, to to say that, that I am actually a different gender, uh, especially for those ones who begin to dress differently or seek surgeries or things like that. Like, obviously, there's there's really something going on there. But from the Christian perspective, what we must recognize is that the people who do that are either actually ill, like mentally ill in some way, or they are simply deluded in the more common sense. Like they are under some form of delusion in the more common sense that's not like, you know, an actual mental illness, but they are simply believing lies. And I think that is the vast majority of the transgender movement. They are simply just believing lies uh, that they are taking and using to define themselves. We're actually going to talk about uh, that a little bit more in just a few minutes. But I want to talk about, um, I think there's an important question that we need to consider when we see, you know, a company like Oreo. <laughs> like Oreo has nothing to do with with gender stuff. They they literally make cookies. The The most complicated that Oreo gets is their double stuffed Oreo. Like, like sometimes they put a little bit more stuffing in the Oreo and, and that's a big deal. In fact, the double stuff Oreo is the best Oreo. And if you disagree with me, you're just wrong. Uh, but, but the question is like, why, why, why is Oreo making a tweet like this? Why would they, you know, who was it? Why was it that, that as a company from, from their Twitter account, that has thousands and thousands of followers, they thought that the necessary message that they needed to send out was that trans people exist. I think this is a serious question. I think this is one that we need to consider because I think it indicates a lot about our culture. So, so the question that I, you know, to put it, to put it into specific words is what is the guiding impulse that would cause a cookie company to think that they need to weigh in on an issue like this. And I have a hypothesis, of course. If if I didn't have a hypothesis, uh, I probably wouldn't have brought this up to begin with. Uh, but my hypothesis is just that this is a, a calculated business decision. You know, this is, this is they, they weighed the numbers. They thought about the, the society. They thought about, you know, their, their stock value. I don't know if Oreo Cookie is actually an openly traded company, but... In the metaphorical sense, you know, they thought about their stock value uh, and they, they considered this uh, from a business stands, standpoint and they, they calculated all the, uh, you know, the different things. They took them into account. They counted the cost and they determined that the best business decision that they could make was to affirm transgender ideology. And what I think we're seeing in culture, because obviously like Oreo is just one of hundreds of companies, probably thousands of companies uh, to do things like this. Uh, and what I think we're seeing is that companies 
are essentially placing their bets on the direction of culture. They are they're they're kind of you know throwing their money in, uh, and they're choosing a side, and they they are um, you know they're they're saying I think this side is going to win. They think in the battle of worldviews. They think that the the side of, of transgenderism, the side of critical theory, the side of sexual revolution, the side of Marxism, they think that side's going to win. And so, you know, as as capitalists, uh, oddly enough, you know, given that they're affirming Marxist ideologies, uh, as capitalists, they, they think, well, the best business decision we can make, the best, uh, you know, the smartest move with the money is to affirm these ideologies because that's going to gain us the most customers or that's going to keep us the most customers they think culture is heading in this direction and so they don't want to be left behind you know they don't want some more progressive cookie company to come out and to make you know gay cookies or transgender cookies and then suddenly oreos left in the cultural dust and so they're they're getting ahead of it and they are making sure that everyone knows this is you know we affirm this we are on uh as as many would put it we are on the right side of history and i think really that is is why they would do something like this uh, they would do something like affirming an ideology that obviously has nothing at all to do with the product that they create you know they 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 don't have to really think about transgenderism when they make their cookies but They've decided to affirm it because I think they believe uh, that that history is going to vindicate the transgender movement. It's going to vindicate the whole political left. And so they want to make sure that they're on the right side of history when that happens. And really, I think all of this uh, is and, you know, I brought up Marxist or Marxism as an ideology. I think all of this really is kind of an affirmation of of uh, a a peculiarly or particularly Marxist uh, dogma. And that, that dogma is that uh, history is kind of inexorably, inevitably marching toward a, a tolerant, progressive utopia. And, uh, you know, that is, that is essentially what Marx and Engels, who wrote the Communist Manifesto, that was one of the key elements of, of what they were describing. They, they had this deep-seated belief that this is the direction culture is heading. Communism is the future. That is simply what will happen. And and so they didn't really see themselves, Marx and Engels, they didn't see themselves so much as the uh, the cause of the communist uh, revolution. They were not, you know, they were not the initiators of it, but instead they were simply prophesying it. They were saying, this is what's going to happen regardless of what anyone does. It is inevitable that this is the way that society is going. And I think that really is the mindset of the the left today. That's why they use that phrase, the right side of history, because in their minds, they, they cannot see any possibility that, that history would go anywhere other than towards the progressive, tolerant utopia that they they devoutly believe in. And so for them, you know, they, they're simply saying like, well, that's that's where they're placing their bets. They they want to be on that side of history when it comes. 
And, and so I think this is really what's going on with all of these companies, uh, you know, all these organizations that are affirming they're jumping into kind of this leftist political agenda is that they simply, you know, as as smart ca- capitalists, they just want to be on the right side. Uh, you know, I, th- I think many, most of these people care far more about money than they care about, you know, the transgender topic or uh, homosexuality or uh, critical race theory or any of these things. I don't think they care about those things really at all, but they recognize that, that at least from their perspective, it's a wise business decision to, to jump in on that. But something you have to recognize and the reason that we as Christians just simply cannot accept the uh, that Christian or that, uh, sorry, that Marxist sort of, it's really a Marxist eschatology. You know, it is a Marxist view of, of how history will progress and culminate. That's an eschatology. Uh, there's, there's a very distinct and clear reason why Christians cannot align with, uh, the Marxist ideology or the leftist ideology on this, which is because it has a completely, uh, different, anthropology than Christianity does. Um, Christianity has a very specific anthropology. By anthropology, I mean doctrine of man, uh, belief about the the nature of mankind. Um, the the sort of Marxist anthropology has a uh, as has a positive anthropology. And really, this uh, this is all an outworking of sort of the Enlightenment and modernism. Uh, they all have this, this positive anthropology where they believe in the, the basic goodness of mankind. And they have this, this trust in human reason. And because of these, these anthropological uh, distinctives of, of modernism, of enlightenment philosophy, of Marxism, because they believe that, that man is basically good, and that it is simply the the systems of the world that that hold man back from being good. They believe that mankind will overcome those things and will, you know, move toward this progressive uh, utopia that that they, you know, look forward to. And uh, that is a a clearly unbiblical anthropology. the The Christian anthropology, the Christian doctrine of man. Uh, recognizes that ever since the fall, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we affirm Romans chapter three, which says none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. This is the the Christian anthropology. Mankind is sinful and we will only overcome sin by the power of the Holy Spirit working in regenerate believers. But apart from faith, everything that we do is sin. Therefore, you as a Christian uh, who, who recognizes this, this anthropology, this, this doctrine of man, you, you cannot, it is completely illogical uh, and anti-scriptural to have a a positive uh, outlook on history apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So, so we understand as Christians that fallen, sinful, God-hating man uh, will not together create a society that is good or that is beneficial for mankind. 
but instead that when when sinful human beings congregate and create societies, uh, that tends to simply amplify sin. Like that is precisely what we see happen in the the story of Babel in Genesis. You know, sinful, fallen people gather together, and what do they do? They want to build a tower so that they can essentially become God. They want to attain the same level as God. And and God, of course, uh, he refutes their their purpose. He he uh, stops them from doing what they were going to do. But that is the what happens when sinful fallen people uh, make societies together. And so that is in direct opposition to the Marxist uh, or leftist sort of eschatology. Uh, the Christian anthropology refutes Marxist or leftist eschatology. Um, but I do think that, that that is why Oreo would, you know, make a tweet like this, <laughs> that, that they, they think trans people exist because they are, they're just placing their bet and they're saying, I think this is where culture is going. I think this is where society is headed. And so what I, you know, what they think is the best business decision, the most calculated business decision is simply to, uh, affirm where culture is headed. So that was the first one I wanted to talk about. I think I think what we're seeing in our popular culture, as represented by Oreo in this instance, is the decay of truth. You know, they're not so much worried about what is true. You know, what what does even what does the science support? Like science does not support transgenderism. It is it is novel. It is absurd. Uh, it's just obviously on the face of it not true. Science doesn't support it, but as a whole, our popular culture, kind of the, the general zeitgeist, does not care about truth. Instead, they care about, uh, you know, they care about reputation. You know, there's a whole different variety of things. They care about money. There's a whole variety of things that, that would guide their decision making. But truth uh, does not appear to be on the list. So uh, next up. Uh, we're going to look at the, the decay of truth in the church. Um, and this is a very interesting thing that literally I, I had a different idea for this podcast episode. Um, I was potentially going to just kind of share a little bit of my, my personal story, um, you know, that led me toward, uh, you know, where I'm at theologically and then also why I would start a podcast like this. And that was really my main idea for the podcast episode today. But right before I sat down to make the episode, um, I saw the Oreo tweet and then I saw the video that we're about to talk about. Uh, and I think this video, again, represents the the decay of truth. Uh, but this one is the decay of truth in the church. Um, and so we're going to watch a video that was tweeted as a response to this tweet that I'm about to show you. So NBC tweeted, NBC News, their their Twitter account, they tweeted and they said this, uh, the percent of Americans who self-identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer increased 60% between 2012 and 2020, according to a new Gallup report. So first off, I just think we have to recognize that is a staggering number that in eight years, the the percent would increase 
8%. Like the percentage of people who identify as one of those things, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer. I'll be honest, I'm not sure I fully understand the difference between queer and then the rest of that list. Um, I guess it just means different. I think generally the way I've heard that term used is, um, is some, it just, it's just kind of a blanket term for one of the other things that, you know, that goes on beyond LGBTQ, I think is kind of a blanket term that, that covers a lot more different things. Uh, and so those things, people identifying as them increased by 60% from 2012 to 2020. That is, as I said, staggering. That is uh, an absurd growth rate that uh, I think can only be contained, or not contained, but uh, uh, described by one sort of idea. And that idea is the idea of a social contagion. Uh, so I have a definition that I will uh, read. I don't think I have a, like, a visual for it if you're watching the video. Uh, but a the definition of uh, social contagion, according to the APA Dictionary of Psychology, is this, the spread of behaviors, attitudes, and effects through crowds and other types of social aggregates from one member to another. So, so it's, you know, we've, we've had this virus for the last year, uh, and, and we talk about how it is contagious. You know, it is something that passes from one person to another, but this is a, a biological thing. You know, it's a particulate spraying from your mouth or from your nose, and that, you know, gets on another person, and then they, uh, you know, get that virus. Um, well, that is... Uh, essentially the idea that we're talking about here with uh, a social contagion, but rather than being a biological thing, it's a, it's a behavior or an attitude uh, that, that is spread through uh, interaction between people. So it's almost like I, in the last episode, I talked about how there are uh, memes, which are units of cultural information that are spread through imitation, well, it's actually kind of similar to that, uh, but it it tends more towards like behaviors and attitudes rather than information. Um, so uh, social contagion is something that is spread, you know, so here's an example of it. I guess this might kind of fit maybe more with meme, but I think it's very similar. Uh, I noticed today. So what a, a phrase that I'll say usually as like a punchline or a joke sometimes is I'll say, uh, what a time to be alive. You know, somebody will say something relatively mundane or silly, and then I'll, I'll respond by saying, what a time to be alive. Um, well, I teach a yearbook class at a school, and I noticed today that a student who I had never heard say that before said it in response to something that another student had said. Um, and it, it's like that. You know, I said it and I repeated it probably multiple times in front of this student. He maybe thought it was funny. And so then he sort of slowly integrated it into his own vernacular. Uh, that is essentially what a social contagion is, is it is, you know, seeing uh, other people doing something and and having that affect your own behavior or attitudes um, and so that is kind of a, a basic definition of social contagion. 
and what uh, studies seem to be showing is that this this uh, staggering rise in people identifying as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer uh, is almost certainly the result of uh, it being a social contagion. It's not. Uh, I, 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 I don't think there's any science to support the idea that there is a, a physical or biological uh, reality behind these things, lesbian, gay, bisexual. Like it's, there's no gay gene. They have not found anything to support that sort of thing. Uh, so it's not simply that a lot more people are being born with the biological disposition towards these behaviors. But instead, it's that society as a whole is becoming more uh, affirming uh, of all of these various ideologies or uh, behaviors or attitudes. And so people are seeing that uh, and and taking that into account and then living those things out. Uh, so I was trying to look up, you know, just some some ideas or some ways for me to understand this sort of social contagion idea. And I found an article in um, Psychology Today. The I'll put the link to the article in the show notes. Um, but the, the article is called Why is Transgender Identity on the Rise Among Teens? And uh, there there's a really good portion from the article that I'm going to read um I'll just read it straight. It's easy to follow along with. So here it is uh, from Psychology Today. Samuel Paul Vissier, I think uh, it's a French last name. Sorry, uh, but he's a PhD. Uh, and here is what he writes. In a recent survey of 250 families whose children develop symptoms of gender dysphoria during or right after puberty, Lisa Littman, a physician and professor of behavioral science at Brown University, uh, found that over 80% of the youth in her sample were female at birth. Littman's study reported many other surprising findings. To meet the diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria, a child typically needs to have shown observable characteristics of the condition prior to puberty, such as a strong rejection of typically feminine or masculine toys or a strong resistance to wearing typically feminine or masculine clothes. Again, 80% of the parents in the study reported observing none of these early signs in their children. The plot thickens. First, many of the youth in the survey had been directly exposed to one or more peers who had recently come out as trans. Next, 63.5% of the parents reported that in the time just before announcing they were trans, their child had exhibited a marked increase in internet and social media consumption. Following popular YouTubers who discussed their transition thus emerged as a common factor in many of the cases. End quote. So, uh, this this researcher, uh, Littman, Lisa Littman, a physician and professor of behavioral science at Brown University, conducted a study of uh, 250 families. And of those 250 fam families, uh, she found uh, a few kind of uh, interesting uh, findings. <laughs> she found some findings. That's somewhat redundant. Uh, but uh, there's a few that I wanted to just bring up 
to hopefully help you to see the the reality behind this idea of the social contagion that this is not, you know, some sort of uh, biological reality, like there's no there's no biological reality to support the idea that that someone can be born in the wrong body. You know, they they are born male with all the male parts, but somehow biologically, they have a female mind. <laughs> like that's that's not uh that's not supported by by any science. Um, and, and I think we can see that by by these trends that were revealed in Lisa Lippman's study. So she said, uh, or it showed that 80% of the parents in the study observed reporting none of the early signs in their children. So these kids did not appear to have any particular disposition away from the gender that they were born with. Uh, that that was not a reality that showed itself in any way for 80% of the kids. Uh, and then the article goes on, the plot thickens. Many of the youth in the survey had been directly exposed to one or more peers who had recently come out as trans. So so here's the, the I think, maybe the clearest element that, that kind of relates to the idea of a social contagion. The It, it kind of spreads from these these peers who identified as uh, trans, um, many, it doesn't give a percentage for this one, but it says many of the youths in the survey had been directly exposed to a peer who had identified as trans. And then we do get a percentage for this next part. It says 63.5% of parents reported that in the time just before announcing they were trans, their child had exhibited a marked increase in internet and social media consumption. Social media, social contagion. I think it, it 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 is beyond reasonable doubt that uh, this this idea of transgenderism is not something that is being uh, you know propagated biologically, but instead it is something that is an ideology that is being spread socially. And I think that's really important for us to uh, to understand as Christians, because uh, given, you know, you probably wouldn't preach to somebody who is, um, you know, they have the biological signs of being schizophrenic. Like you're not going to call a schizophrenic person uh, to to repent of their schizophrenia, because that is, uh, you know, we understand that is a genuine mental illness that is not something they choose even though their schizophrenia might cause them to hurt others, to sin against others, uh, their schizophrenia is not a thing that they chose. But I think what we see with all this this reality about uh, social contagion is that the vast majority of, of people who identify in, in these various ways uh, do so as a result of social uh, realities rather than biological realities. And so what they're, what they're doing is, you know, seeing, responding to, uh, social norms around them. And they're saying, I'm, I'm going to, for whatever reason, I'm going to, uh, emulate that myself. And, uh, that means therefore, uh, that, that we as Christians must call such people to repentance, we are called to repent of sin. 
And we understand sin to be willful transgression of the law of God, or even, you know, unwillful. There, there are probably sins that we could think of if you wanted to, that, that would be things we do subconsciously or unconsciously, I guess. Uh, but definitely these conscious sins, conscious, uh, purposeful decisions to transgress against the, the will or the law of God, uh, we must call people to repent of such behavior. And the all the evidence points to the idea that transgenderism is such a behavior. It's something that's chosen. It's not thrust upon you. Uh, it is not biologically mandated, but instead it is a choice that people make as a result of cultural and social pressures. So we must call transgender people to repent uh, because they are commanded to do as God says rather than as culture says. So... Uh, NBC tweeted that tweet that said, you know, there's been a 60% rise in these identities since 2012 to 2020. Uh, and then in response to that tweet, a, <laughs> a, a group of people who identify as a church, <laughs> if we're going to use the, the language of identify, uh, a group of people who identify themselves as a church in New York City called Middle Collegiate Church uh, shared a video. And I want to show you this video. Uh, I'm not going to preface it because I want you to experience it the way that I did. Um, so here we are. Oh, wait, just a second. Got to get my tech sorted out. Here is the video. She asked if she can talk to me about Jesus at 3 a.m. on the C train because something about my queer face means clearly I'm on a path straight to hell. <laughs> I've come to expect this type of reaction from strangers at least once a week since the first time I was exercised at 16. But today I've grown tired and I've decided it is my turn to proselytize. So before you do any of that, I want to know from you. Have you heard the good word about Joseph of Genesis? See, Joseph, Josephine, Joe of Genesis, favorite child of Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. When asked what you wanted, you desired one thing, a ketunef pasim. Pastor called this a royal coat, and Joseph, I had never read the Bible before, found you and kept reading Josephine. I got to Second Samuel and realized your coat of many colors was a princess dress. Joseph, your father must have really loved you. Because he got it for you and you wore it with pride. Joe, when your brothers saw you in your flowing dress, in your glory, they became enraged. I am sorry for the beating you received. Sorry they destroyed your dress and smeared it with the red paint of your swollen veins. Josephine, did you know they told your father you were dead? So he never come looking for you. Never knew your brothers sold you as a slave into Egypt. And once you were stolen from your home fields, the earth dried up. Joe, the very ground on which you walked, mourned the loss of its gender queer child. And all the plants died. And the animals no longer had the will to live. Josephine, your family nearly starved. Saw the formation of ribs where once there grew flesh and belly fat. And they, hungry and desperate, traveled into Egypt. And what must they have seen, Joe? See, in Egypt, people discovered you, not as a fag, not as a tranny. They saw you in totality. You went from slave to leader over lands. There you were, Josephine, as you. 
as magnificent, and your family couldn't even recognize you through the glare of divinity, but you saw them shivering in fear, waiting to hear what this regal leader might say, wondering if your spirit might see fit to grant them the grain needed to survive, and Joseph Love broke through the darkness of resentment, and for the first time, your family saw you as you. So, uh, if you were just listening to the podcast rather than watching the video, uh, you didn't see, but that was a spoken word video (laughs) shared by, uh, as I said, a group of people identifying as a church. Honestly, my first reaction is just that why, why are people still doing spoken word poetry? It wasn't cool, you know. 15 years ago when the trend really kicked off on YouTube, and it's definitely still not cool now. I'm sorry if you like it, but I just don't get the appeal. It's like, uh, you know, it's not quite rapping. It's not quite music. It's not quite lyrics. It almost never rhymes. Like, there's... It's just someone talking far too confidently. I I do not understand the, uh, the current love or uh, appreciation for spoken word poetry, and that annoys me. But, uh, yes, so that was a spoken word poem called Josephine by uh, a, I don't, what I call the person, a spoken word artist, J. Mace Three, who is very clearly a woman who is dressing and, um, I guess in her mind, acting like a man. And uh, in it, like, obviously, she she talks about a lot there, but uh, the main sort of assertion that she makes in this spoken word, I I would imagine she has more spoken words, but in this particular spoken word, uh, she is asserting that Joseph, uh, you know, Joseph of Genesis 37 to 50, uh, Joseph was a transgender person or as she calls it, gender queer. Uh, why? Why would she make such an assumption? Uh, well, uh, as she says, because she, uh, once she got to Second Samuel, she saw that the coat of many colors that Joseph was given as a gift from his father was actually a princess dress. So, so I don't want to you know, put words in her mouth. So a direct quote of what she said, I know she was speaking quickly. She was, you know, going on, uh, you know, from one topic or, you know, very quickly from, from idea to idea to idea. Uh, and that can make it hard to recall. Um, but here's a direct quote of what she said. She said, so after she had kind of heard the story of Joseph, she said, I got to second Samuel and realized your coat of many colors was a princess dress. Now, obviously, Samuel's actual coat, like the specific coat that Samuel was given, is not mentioned in Second Samuel. So the question is, like, well, what was it in Second Samuel, the book of Second Samuel, that would uh, cause her to think that Joseph's coat uh, was actually a dress? which she reiterates multiple times throughout the spoken word that, that it was a dress and she really wants to use that word. What's funny is that, uh, the, the Hebrew word, which she brings up, uh, kutonet, uh, that word is never once translated as dress 
in the Old Testament, at least definitely not in the ESV. That's the translation I, I tend towards. Uh, and never once is that Hebrew word translated as dress, which is the word she chooses to use uh, over and over uh, throughout her uh, spoken word. So the question is, why why would she or what is it in the book of Second Samuel that made her think that uh, the the coat of many colors that Joseph was given was a princess dress. So I did a, a word study, which is essentially just where you go uh, into a passage and you you know you find a, an important word, you know, and you'll often if you're like preparing to preach a sermon, you'll you'll look at words that are specific and and really impact the meaning of the verse, and you'll uh, look up the different places or ways that that word is used throughout the rest of the Bible to get a better sense of what does the word mean. And oftentimes what you'll find is that, you know, a word in the English text uh, is, you know, it's based on a Hebrew word or on a Greek word. And that one Hebrew or Greek word is often translated a few different ways into the English Bible. Uh, and so, and, and the reason that happens, obviously, is just that uh, words are used in different senses often. Uh, and so sometimes a word that's used in, in the original Hebrew makes more sense to be translated one way in one context and one way in another context. Uh, and so I went to the text uh, of uh, Genesis 37, where Joseph is given his coat of many colors, and I did a word study on the Hebrew word for coat there, which is kutanet. Uh, and sorry, my Hebrew pronunciation. I took Hebrew in uh, university, but it's been a few years, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it super he Hebraic for you. I'm just going to kutanet. Uh, close enough. So I looked up that word, and it's used uh, 29 times in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word. Um, and throughout the, at least the ESV translation, it's translated four different ways. And I would imagine most translations are probably very similar in that regard. Uh, but in the ESV, it's translated four different ways, uh, as coat, robe, garment, and tunic. Tunic only comes up once and the others come up uh, a variety of, of times. Um, and so I, I went through the list to try to find, uh, where was this this Hebrew word kutanet uh, used in Second Samuel? Like, what is it in Second Samuel that she saw that made her think uh, that that Joseph was a transgender or gender queer person? Uh, and so I found Second Samuel chapter thirteen verse eighteen, and then the word is used again in verse nineteen, but. It's the same context, so I figured I would just read one of the verses uh, so that you could get a sense for uh, what's going on in the passage. So in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 18, uh, it reads as follows. Now she was wearing a robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So the she in this passage is Tamar. And Tamar was wearing a robe, and that word robe there is the word kutanet. Uh, it, is, it is the same word that is used for uh, Joseph's coat of many colors. And of course, uh, the, the passage here talks about uh, this, this robe that, that Tamar is wearing is the same sort of dress that the uh, virgin daughters of the king wore. And so the, this uh, woman 
who made the spoken word, she draws a connection and she says, oh, look, the same word that's used to describe uh, the the princess's dresses is used to describe the the coat that Joseph wears. And she thinks, of course, that her her case is uh, supported by the fact that Joseph's coat has many colors. And so she thinks it's a really pretty sundress, you know, of many colors. And I, and I think that is the connection that she is making. But uh, what I want to show you is that, as I mentioned, this 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 uh, Hebrew word kutanet is used 29 times in the Old Testament and and the majority, like the vast majority of those uses refer either to male clothing, what it, again, very clearly male clothing, or to both genders, clothing that, that is worn by both genders. Uh, and so what we need to understand about this term is that there, there is nothing inherent in the term that would, that should lead anybody to believe that it refers to women's clothing. So, so there's nothing in the text of Genesis 37 that should lead anybody to think that the uh, coat that Joseph was wearing was a, a feminine-style garment. And the reason for that is, as I said, over and over this term is used, and usually it refers to clothing that men are wearing, but then it does very occasionally uh, refer to clothing that women or both genders are wearing. And so what I wanted to walk through uh, was just to look at um, four verses where these these four different terms are used. Uh, as I said, kutanet is translated four ways, coat, robe, garment, and tunic. And what you'll see as I just walk through four of these 29 uses, what you'll notice is that uh, it is obviously a very generic term for clothes that's not specific to any particular gender. So first, let's look at Exodus chapter 28. So in Exodus, uh, this particular passage is talking about the priests, and it's talking about the garments uh, or the clothing that the priests will wear. And what we know about priests uh, in, old, in the Old Testament was that they could only be men. There were no female priests. And so the fact that this word, kutanet, is used to talk about the clothing that male priests wear uh, mandatorily male priests, it, it makes very clear that uh, this this word can talk about men's clothing. So again, there's no reason to assume that this is talking about female clothing. And in fact, in this passage, Exodus chapter 28, verse 4, it is translated exactly the same way as the word coat, just like it is in Genesis 37. So Exodus chapter 28, verse 4, uh, talking about the priests, it says, these are the garments that they shall make, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, and a coat of checker work. So that's the word there, coat, coutinet, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. So here's a very clear uh, incident where the term coat is used to describe male clothing, the term coutinet male clothing for male priests, Aaron and his sons. So that would be enough by itself to completely negate the argument that this woman makes in her weird spoken word thing. But let's go on. Uh, the term is also translated as robe. And in Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 and 21, uh, it talks about the robe that uh, would be put onto King Eliakim. 
And what I want you to notice is that over and over in these verses, male pronouns are used. So when it it brings up a robe that is going to be put on a man and it uses male pronouns over and over and over again. So Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 and 21 begin, quote, In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe. Robe there, that's the word, kutanet, uh, and I will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So this word, kutanet, used to describe the robe of King Eliakim, who is referred to with masculine pronouns or masculine words five, no, six times in this, just these two verses. So again, very obviously, this word uh, used to describe the coat of uh, many colors worn by Joseph is a word that can obviously refer to male clothing. But in the next passage, where uh, we're going to see a translation into the word garment, we're going to see that it can refer to clothing that's worn by either gender. So Genesis uh, chapter 3, this is uh, talking about Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says this, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So that term garments there, the term that's used for garments is kutanet, the the same Hebrew word. And here, obviously, it's referring to clothing, generic clothing that is worn by both Adam and Eve. So so this, this term, again, obviously refers to clothes worn by both. And I say both because there's only two genders. And then finally, uh, the, the word is translated as tunic. In the book of Job, uh, in Job chapter 30, verse 18, Job is talking about himself, notably a male, a man. And it says, with great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. So referring here to a male's tunic, the word kutanet is translated tunic for a man, it is made very clear yet again that Kutanet can refer to male clothing. So her her suggestion that, that Joseph was a, a transgender or gender queer because the same word that's used for his coat is used for a woman's dress in 2 Samuel just doesn't hold up. It is just clear and obvious, shoddy, uh, you know, purposefully bad uh, hermeneutics purposefully bad uh, biblical interpretation. And and I think this is just a a very clear example of how false Christians will purposefully twist God's word in order to affirm their agenda. And this is what I'm talking about when I say that that truth is decaying in many churches. They do not care about what, what the truth is of what God's word actually says, All they care about is how they can twist God's word to support their agenda insofar as they care about God's word at all. Many churches, you know, wouldn't even care enough about God's word to use it to justify their positions. 
but those who do often will take it and twist it so that it can be made to support their their ideas or their ideologies even though it clearly doesn't and this is just such a clear example of that where somebody is taking something and they're doing you know hermeneutical tricks to try to fool people into it because you know the average person they hear somebody make a claim about hebrew and they don't have the tools or the the experience to be able to refute such a claim so so you know the average person who hears this spoken word probably what happens is they think wow is that true does does the word that refers to joseph's tunic or joseph's coat actually you know mean a woman's dress and they don't have you know bible software like i have to be able to look that up and to be able to study it and so there this seed of doubt is placed in them and they begin to wonder, well, how many other things about Scripture have I been lied to about? And what, it, what the, the whole purpose behind it is to cause doubt. It's to sow seeds of doubt in Christians so that their trust in the Word of God is shaken. And so I think this is obviously a, a call uh, very strongly for biblical literacy. We must know the word of God and we must be willing to put in time so that assaults like this on the truth contained in scripture uh, can be refuted. You need to be able to refute these things. And so I encourage you, I, I call you uh, to study God's word so that you will not be uh, taken captive by foolish ideologies uh, of the world. Um, but something that I think is is funny about this that that even if you just know the story of Joseph, I think you can see that this is just sort of a whole false mythology that she that this woman is creating about Joseph. So she calls Joseph. Here is her version of Joseph's story. Josephine is a persecuted gender queer uh, person who is welcomed by the affirming Egyptians, and then. When his own family is in trouble, or sorry, her, Josephine's, when Josephine's own family is in trouble, Josephine shows mercy to, uh, I'm going to say his, because Joseph is a dude, no matter what anyone says, but Josephine shows mercy to his transphobic brothers and shows that really transgender or genderqueer people are morally superior and we should all praise them. That is essentially the mythology that she's she's trying to create. Uh, so here's a here's a quote that I think if you just know the story of Joseph, what you'll know or what you'll be able to spot very quickly that this quote, you know, is is just wrong. And the whole mythology that this woman created to discuss Joseph uh, is is just obviously incorrect. So here's a direct quote from the spoken word. She said, "See." In Egypt, people discovered you, not as a fag, not as a tranny. They saw you in totality. You went from slave to leader over lands. There you were Josephine as you, as magnificent, end quote. So, so the idea being presented here is that the Egyptians... Eventually, uh, she does seem to affirm that he went to Egypt as a slave, but eventually the Egyptians uh, accepted Joseph as a trans woman, as Josephine, as magnificent in Josephine's totality. 
that is the that's the hypothesis that's the mythology being presented by uh this this spoken word but why does there's a very clear reason why this makes absolutely no sense for one is the mere fact that Joseph was, you know, imprisoned and enslaved for years. So obviously the Egyptians were not this enlightened society that that saw this transgender person and thought, wow, we really need to to raise this person up and and give Josephine, you know, a shot. That's definitely not what happened. But also what happens when Joseph is brought to power? They give Joseph a wife. What do they do? They, they give Joseph a female spouse, not a husband. So, so it doesn't seem that the Egyptians recognize Joseph as a gender queer or transgender person because they, they give Joseph the spouse appropriate to Joseph's uh, biology. They give Joseph a female wife. <laughs> so so it just is so obvious that that this whole mythology uh, does not actually fit the story that we read in scripture. And so again, I, I encourage you, uh, you're going to more and more, I think you're going to face sort of falsehoods like this that that are uh, built up just purely uh, to cause you to have doubt in uh, what you believe or what scripture says, or whether scripture is trustworthy, or whether the teachings that you've been uh, under throughout your life are trustworthy. And what you must do is you need to know God's word enough that, that when things like this are presented to you, you can refute them. So we're going to move on from that one. Um, next up, we're going to talk about the decay of truth in government. So we talked about the decay of truth in popular culture, in, in the church, and now in government. And what we're going to look at is the uh, Equality Act. So in, uh, well, today, uh, I'm going to read a, a, a tweet, not a quote, a tweet to you uh, from the Human Rights Campaign. They tweeted and said, the Equality Act has passed the House of Representatives with bipartisan support. We are one step closer to ensuring that every person in America is treated equally under the law. So, uh, this is bad news, but it is news nonetheless. The House of Representatives has passed the Equality Act. Now, if you're not familiar with the Equality Act, I will read to you uh, the the main purpose of the act, uh, the, the text of it, just the very beginning that sort of summarizes what the purpose of the Equality Act is. It says this, to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and uh, sexual orientation, and for other purposes. So, I'll read that again. This is the Equality Act, the summary of the Equality Act, which is uh, H.R. 5. To prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation, and for other purposes. So what's going on here? Well, what this is, is this is actually a an amendment to the Civil Rights Act uh, of the 1960s. And what it does is it expands the the protected classes from the Civil Rights Act. 
and and the effect of it what it what it effectually does is it creates a legally recognized category for transgenderism and homosexuality and it enshrines them as protected classes within our society it 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 gives them legal recognition and and of course there's um, i can't probably even fathom all the different ways that that will play out legally you know i don't know exactly what that's going to do for churches i don't know exactly what that's going to do for christian nonprofits uh, a lot of people have written articles on those things uh, and i think they're very important um but what I want to focus on just in, in the last few moments of this podcast episode is, is what this does, or at least what this signifies culturally. I, I do agree um, with, with those who say, I cannot, I'm sorry, I can't remember who uh, said this quote first, um, but the quote nonetheless is uh, that politics is downstream from culture. And I agree with that. I agree that, you know, this is only happening. This bill is only passing in the House and potentially the Senate. That's where it's going to go next for a vote. Um, it's headed there. Uh, but this is only happening because our our uh, culture has allowed it to happen. You know, politicians don't generally do things that are strongly opposed to the culture. Uh, they are not known, at least in our day, for their uh, bravery. So they don't do things that are that are opposed to the will of the society at large. Uh, so the fact that this is happening is obviously uh, something that is indicative of of where we're at as a culture. Um, but I do think that it, it kind of goes both ways. So now that this has happened, I think it this act in itself, the the trans or the the Equality Act in itself uh, will now have its own effects on the culture. So it, it was a product of the culture, but now it will also impact the culture that comes after it. Uh, and I think what it what it really will do culturally is that it's going to further solidify the accepted status of transgenderism and homosexuality within our society. Uh, of course, I think we saw a huge step that direction in the Obergefell decision in 2014, which uh, it did not legalize homosexuality because laws are written by Congress. Uh, but it, it sought, I think foolishly and incorrectly to find uh, protection for homosexual marriage in the constitution as it already existed. Um, and so I think a huge step in this direction already happened back in 2014 with the Obergefell decision. But I think this is a, a big step continuing down that path and what i think is unique about this one is that it its language specifically uh includes the transgender ideology which i think transgenderism is representative of an even bigger step uh, away from truth than homosexuality is you know it's one thing for a man to be attracted to a man it's one it's another thing entirely for a man to think he is a woman <laughs> like that is a, another step further away from truth. And what I think the, the effect that this is going to have is that it's going to pull the Overton window further left. Uh, and, and so the Overton window is a concept that I really like. Um, I'm guessing it's named after someone named with the last name Overton, but I don't actually know. 
Um, but it's a it's a pretty popular concept that people will use. Uh, and essentially, the Overton window, what it refers to is uh, a, a metaphorical window which contains all of the um, opinions or ideas that are acceptable culturally. So they are all the things that you can say within culture without being, uh, you know, strongly rejected for saying those things. Uh, And so the things inside the window are acceptable, and then uh, everything outside the window is what is unacceptable. And what I think this is going to do, the passing of the Equality Act, is it is going to pull the Overton window further towards the political left. So so it will make it uh, legally and politically dangerous to to speak against things like homosexuality and transgenderism because it's it's sort of erecting a protecting wall around these and it's making them protected uh, classes within society. And of course, once once a, a group has legal recognition, um, you are anybody who opposes that after the fact is seen as very backward, even more backward than, than we are already seen. Uh, and, and so I think this is going to have a very negative effect on our, uh, ability to oppose these sorts of sin, uh, because, uh, this is sort of a new wall of protection around them. And so not to say that we should stop opposing them. Obviously, we must continue to oppose them, but it's going to be more uh, legally and politically dangerous uh, and even financially dangerous to to speak against these sins. I think I do think it's likely that because of the Equality Act, uh, a variety of of different Christian groups or nonprofits or schools, things like that uh, will be, um, you know, shut down because they will lose court cases where, uh, you know, say, so you've all probably heard of the, the cake baker, um, that whole situation where, you know, somebody wanted to receive the service of the cake baker in Colorado, uh, and he would not bake a cake for a gay wedding. Um, you know, and he won that case. Once this bill is passed, I do not think he would win a case like that. Uh, and of course, if he lost the case, uh, he would have been ruined entirely. Uh, and, and then another, you know, another implication of this uh, or another effect of the bill itself or the Equality Act is that you would have to hire, uh, not necessarily you have to hire every transgender person that, that applies for a job or whatever, but uh, you cannot use transgenderism, you know, as a disqualifying factor or homosexuality as a disqualifying factor. And if you do, you are subject to legal uh, you know, ramifications. And obviously that would, uh, cause major problems for churches or for Christian nonprofits, um, and could be very costly. And so, uh, I think this is obviously a bad sign of where we are already at in culture. And it's a bad sign for where things are headed. Uh, and I think fundamentally, again, this is a, it's an example of the decay of truth. Like our government, our, the, the people who are, uh, elected to rule over us are codifying a, a misunderstanding of gender. One of the most fundamental, uh, units within society, man and woman 
our government is codifying a a blatant misunderstanding of those categories. Uh, truth itself is decaying in this act. And obviously, as, as any society uh, becomes more and more unmoored from reality or from truth, that society cannot stand. Uh, it, it cannot survive when it rejects the most fundamental aspects of human existence. That's not a possibility. Um, and so, obviously, this is uh, it's a symptom uh, of where we're at, and I think it, it, it really shows or displays more clearly uh, the regress, I would not say progress, I would say regress that we have made as a culture. So, uh, obviously, these are dark uh, moments. I, I, it is not uh, a good thing to see situations like this unfold in front of us. And, and what we must do is we must pray and we must speak. We, we cannot be silent about, about these things. Uh, they are too fundamental. They are too integral to the health of our society uh, to, to simply let them roll onward without opposition. And to the extent that we remain quiet in the face of such confusion and such sin, to that extent, we are responsible for it. We must oppose these uh, purposeful misunderstandings of reality. Uh, obviously, there are various agendas behind them, uh, various sinful desires behind them, and so we must call people to repent. Uh, so thank you so much for listening to this episode. Um, grateful for your continued uh, listening or watching. And uh, I really would invite you to follow me on uh, whatever platform you'd like. Uh, I'm on Facebook uh, at TJ Lucasen. I'm on Twitter at TJ Lucasen. Uh, there's a Facebook page for the podcast, Holy Bold Podcast. Uh, there's a YouTube channel. And then uh, the podcast is hosted through a site called Simplecast. And so if you if you want to just listen to it, but you want to do that on your computer, you can go to the-holy-bold-podcast.simplecast.com. Uh, so thank you so much again for uh, listening or watching grateful for you. And I hope it was helpful. Uh, and I will see you sort of next week. 